a world of conflict, don't we? I mean, it is conflict all around us. You turn on your television and you see conflict on television. You see wars. You see people killing one another, maiming one another, raping, destroying, pillaging. We live in a violent world of conflict. And the reason this is, is because there is a greater conflict going on. And that is the conflict that has been going on since before everything that you see was created. It's the conflict between good and evil. The conflict between God and Satan. Satan, Lucifer in his pride, wanted to be God. And so he rebelled against God. God casts him out of heaven. And in his rage, Satan has ever since... He has waged war upon God and the forces of God. And this war, this conflict that takes place, there there are no innocent bystanders in this conflict. Satan and God have both enlisted every single human being onto one side or another. So we are all participants in this conflict between good and evil. The question is, which side are we participating on? And so through the pages of history... We have seen so many great warriors in this conflict, right, on both sides. We've seen great men and women of God, mightily used by God for good. We've also seen a great number of powerful soldiers for Satan that have been used by the enemy. Oftentimes we call them tyrants. There's been plenty of tyrants for us to look at through the pages of history. We've had our share of Joseph Stalin's and Muammar Gaddafi's and Saddam Hussein's. History's full of tyrants who were powerful warriors for Satan. The pages of Scripture are also filled with plenty of tyrants who were powerful soldiers for Satan. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, uh, the Pharaoh was a great warrior for Satan. We turn today to a story in God's Word that is bookended by another great warrior for Satan, one of of several from the family of Herod. Our story in chapter 12 is bookended, so to speak, by this story of King Herod. And in the middle of these bookends of this powerful warrior for Satan comes this story of, of peace and prayer and the sovereignty of God. So join me in Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at the majority of the chapter today, except for the, maybe the last two verses. We'll look at verse, at least verse 1 through 23. We're going to do this in a little bit different fashion today. We're going to begin at the beginning, then we're going to jump to the end, then we're going to, going to go to the middle, and then we're going to go back to the beginning part of the middle again. So we're not going to look at it in the way that Luke wrote it. And I think that you'll see that that's helpful as we go through it. So Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Let's read, first of all, the first five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him, to God by the church. So we see this man Herod, this powerful warrior for Satan. We see him waging war for the forces of evil. He wages war against the church. He has this fellow James arrested and thrown in prison and 
He has him executed, then he arrests Peter. So we see him waging war against the forces of good. Now this man Herod, who was he? It's um, a little confusing, I think, sometimes, because there were, there were at least three Herods in Scripture, actually four Herods in Scripture, but three principal Herods that we can talk about from the pages of Scripture, and sometimes it's easy to, to get them all mixed up. There was, first of all, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the grandfather of the Herod of our story here today. He was the one who was in power when Jesus was born. You remember Herod the Great? He was the one that the Magi came and told him of the king that was born king. And so he killed all the Jewish baby boys. And uh, then Jesus fled to, to Egypt. That was, that was Herod the Great, a very evil man, a great warrior for Satan. Um, he was uh, the grandfather of the Herod of our story here today. Now, he was a very nasty person. <clears throat> In fact, he was so nasty that, that none of his sons became king after him because he murdered them all. He killed all of his own sons to prevent them from taking his power away from him. So he was a very nasty fellow, uh, executed all of his sons, but his nephew, another Herod, called Herod um, Antipas, was the next Herod to take uh, leadership or to take the throne. He was the Herod that was in charge when Jesus was an adult. You remember Her uh, Jesus talked about him, he called him that fox and you remember, he was the one who lopped off John the Baptist's head. That was Herod Antipas. You know, he made that foolish vow to the girl that danced for him, right? And then he had to follow through on it. So that was Herod Antipas, the nephew of Herod the Great, the uncle of the Herod in our story. Then there was the Herod of our story, or um, otherwise known as Herod Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa I. He was king um, up until his death in 44 A.D., um, king over Israel and Palestine, but he was vi uh, really a very poor leader, and he was um, really he was a washout in life. He was he was really a loser. The only way that he was made king was that he happened to be lucky enough to make a very good boyhood friend. He grew up in Rome, and he made friends with a guy named Caligula. Caligula now happens to be the emperor, and so Caligula has made him king over Israel. But he was a very poor king. He was a very poor leader. And in addition to this, he was ruling over a group of people that were very difficult to rule. The Jews, especially in this period of history, were just a cantankerous bunch of folks. They just didn't want to be ruled over by Rome. And so they were always making problems for Rome whenever they could. Now Caligula was friends with Herod, but he wasn't that good of a friend with Herod. And so Caligula's hearing about all these problems from, from uh, Israel... And he doesn't like it, and, and he's getting close to taking Herod off the throne there, and Herod knows it. And so Herod is trying to curry favor with the Jewish people. He's trying to please the Jewish people, which, you know, think of the irony of that, a leader trying to please the people he leads instead of doing what a leader should do, which is lead the people that he leads, right? So he's trying to appease the Jewish people because the Jewish people really don't like him at all. And then, in fact... They actually quite hated him because Herod, the whole Herod family, were Edomites. And you remember the Edomites, they were a long-time enemy of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people had lots of reasons to not like Herod, and they made those reasons known to Rome. And so Rome was getting a little impatient with Herod. And so Herod is trying to please the Jews and trying to curry favor with the Jewish people. So he tries something here. He has this fellow James arrested, thrown in prison, and executed, beheaded. And um, the Jews liked it. 
I mean, they, they really dug it. They liked the fact that this guy James was thrown into prison and executed because these Christians are just sort of a thorn in their side. And um, to have this guy Herod sort of fighting on their side against these Christians, well, the Jews enjoyed that quite a lot. So this fellow James that he had uh, executed in prison, we talked about Herod's a moment ago. James's can be just as confusing because there's three Jameses in the New Testament. In fact, two of them are in our passage. Two of these Jameses were apostles. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, whom we know very little about. Not much was written about him. There was James, the brother of John. Both of them were the sons of Zebedee. Remember, they were the ones who were nicknamed sons of thunder, right? That's the James that was executed, the brother of John who wrote the apostle, or I mean the, uh, the epistle, John. And then there's a third James in the New Testament. That's the half-brother of Jesus. He shows up later in the passage because he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So three Jameses. James, the brother of John, was the one who was martyred here. He's the only apostle in the New Testament to be martyred, whose death that we read about. So he's, he's martyred here in, uh, in verses 1, 2, 3. And the Jews like this. And Herod likes the fact that the Jews like it. So he thinks to himself, well... Why don't I do this again? Maybe I can expand on this. So he has Peter arrested with the intention of doing the same thing to Peter. Only the Passover catches him. And so the Passover comes and Herod knows that he can't execute Peter during the Passover. The Jews would not look like that at all. And so he's got to wait until the Passover passes over. And so he's waiting in prison for the Passover to be over. He's going to be executed after the Passover. In the meantime, the church is offering up fervent, earnest prayer on behalf of Peter. We'll come back to that part later. So that is the war that we see being waged against the people of God, the war against the forces of good. Now let's skip down to verse 20, and we'll read the end of the chapter. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So there's the end of a rather ugly man, the ugly end of an ugly man here. Herod has this disagreement come up with Tyre and Sidon. For some reason, all throughout Scripture, Tyre and Sidon seemed to depend on Israel for food. Uh, Maybe they had trouble growing food of their own. So even in the Old Testament, we find that Tyre and Sidon were always making deals with Israel to buy food from them. And so they're doing this here, and some sort of disagreement comes up over the deal, and the people of Tyre and Sidon get upset because they're not getting food from Israel, and so they send this guy Blastus, what a name, Blastus, so they send Blastus as a representative to have this this parlay with King Herod, and he shows up here, and they have this big meeting. Now, Luke doesn't tell us a lot about this meeting, but the Jewish historian Josephus gives us some more details. Josephus tells us all about this meeting between Blastus and Herod, and he tells it like this. You, You see, Herod had arranged the king's court, which was outside. He had arranged the king's court so that he always sat or stood facing 
uh, eastward. And he only had court in the afternoons. So that everyone who came to see Herod was looking at him with the sun behind him. Right? Imagine how annoying that is. Right? I mean, you, you know what it's like to drive at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? It's like towards Greensboro, westward. And the sun is right below the bottom of your visor and it's right there in your face. You know, it's terribly annoying. That, that's what it was like to come to talk to Herod. You're looking straight at the sun. So that gives you a little idea about this guy and what he thought of himself. So everybody that talked to him had to be looking into the sun to do it. And then for this meeting, Josephus tells us that he had a special robe that was made that was woven from 100% pure silver thread. So imagine the the reflection. Imagine the gaudiness, actually. But imagine the reflection as this Herod comes up here wearing all silver. And everybody, this guy Blastus is looking into the sun. Then Herod gives this speech. You can imagine what the speech was like, if you know what Herod was like. And God just has enough and just strikes him down. God's just fed up with the pride of this man, Herod, and just, he sends an angel, and the angel strikes him dead. We read that he was eaten by worms. If we put together Luke's wording with Josephus' account, then what we realize is what probably happened was he had a tapeworm. People in those days, there was a big problem with tapeworms in those days. And there's a certain kind of tapeworm that laid its eggs in a person's kidney. And when those eggs hatched, then the kidney ruptured. And so that's probably what happened to Herod. He was eaten by worms, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, you see. And so he comes to this very ugly end because God has had enough of his pride. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, remember? As he looks out over Babylon and he says, Babylon, this city that I have built... And God just has enough, and He gives him the mind of, a, of an animal, of a beast. Same thing with Herod here. And the point here is, this is an illustration for just how much God hates pride. God despises pride in humans. And God writes in His Word repeatedly. He says, for example, in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. And so God has had enough of the pride of Herod and just simply brings this man's ugly life to an ugly end. It's a warning for us that God still hates pride today. Pride is the root of all sin. Pride was what caused Lucifer to rebel against God. And after Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he appeals to the pride of Eve to make her fall. And then every sin after that, every sin that you commit is rooted somewhere in pride. And so God despises our pride. So if you are living in pride before God, then, then be warned from Acts 12, your life is in danger because God despises pride. So that's what we see here in the part of, uh, of the story of Herod. But I don't think that's the main part of what Luke wants us to see here. I think the main part comes in the middle here. Let's begin reading now verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, speaking of Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know 
what it was being done by the angel was real, but he thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant, named, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there, were, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So here in this middle section here, we see, I think, Luke's main lesson for the chapter, and this, this revolves around two elements, two elements of the story. The first is Peter himself in prison and what happens in prison. And then the second element of the story is this prayer meeting that's going on. So let's look at the second one first, this prayer meeting that's taken place. This is a bona fide, genuine, authentic prayer meeting. I mean, they are really praying. Luke says in verse 5, they were lifting up earnest prayer for him. That's the same word that Luke uses in chapter 22 to describe what Jesus did the night of his arrest in the garden, right? When he prayed so earnestly that he sweated drops of blood. So they're, they're really pouring out their heart to God. This is a real prayer meeting. You know, we have on Wednesday nights what we call prayer meeting, and we do pray, but... I don't think we pray like these folks were praying. They were pouring their heart out to God, begging God to hear and to answer and to move. Now, what were they praying? Well, they were probably praying, I would imagine, something like they prayed in chapter 4. Remember chapter 4. This is the third time Peter's been arrested. The second time he was arrested, in chapter 4, the church got together and they were praying for him then. And, and there, Luke tells us what they were praying. He says that they were praying for boldness that Peter would remain bold to speak the Word and that they would remain bold to continue speaking the Word. So certainly they're praying that prayer. But I think we have to believe also that they were also with that prayer, they were also praying for Peter himself, for his safety. They were probably praying something like this. God, if it would please you, then deliver Peter to us. If it would please you, then restore Peter deliver him from this execution. I think certainly they were praying something like that, couching it, of course, with the will of God. And so they're praying earnestly, so earnestly, in fact, and this is where it gets good, that when Peter comes to them and knocks on the gate, they send the servant girl Rhoda to open the gate, and she recognizes Peter. It doesn't say she saw him. It says she recognized his voice. She knows it's Peter, and she's so happy that she doesn't let him in. And she goes back in, leaves him outside. An escaped prisoner, by the way, on the streets of Jerusalem, leaves him outside still knocking. 
So she's so happy to hear that, to see that Peter has uh, been released and he's here. She goes to tell everybody and nobody believes her. They're praying so hard for Peter and for Peter's release that they don't want to be bothered by the fact that Peter has been released. Leave us alone. We're, we're praying for Peter here. Leave us alone, Rhoda. But he's here. Not, we're praying. You, you, you leave, leave us alone. We're praying for Peter. But he's here. And then the comedy gets better. Whoever said the Holy Spirit doesn't have a sense of humor? The comedy gets better. Because Rhoda says, he's really here. And they say, well, you're out of your mind. No, he's really here. It must be his angel. Right? The Jews at this time believed that every person had an angel. And that that angel made an appearance when the person was either near death or right after death. So they're like, well, it must be his angel. To which I want to ask, okay, what if it was? Does, why would an angel be knocking at the door, first of all? If it was an angel, why is he knocking at the door? Secondly, if it is his angel, then why won't you open the door for the angel? You know, the whole thing is just hilarious. And so, leave us alone, Rhoda. We're praying for Peter. But Peter's here. So they finally listen to her, open the gate. Peter comes in. And they're so excited. Peter motions with his hand. Listen, listen, let me tell you. And he tells them all about this. And then Peter goes away. Now, the lesson for us here, I think, is this. It is entirely possible for us to pray for a thing all the while not believing that God would actually do the thing, and God does it anyway. It's entirely possible for us to pray for a thing, not even really expecting God to do it, and then be shocked, or at least taken off guard, when God actually does it. I think that's a little bit of what happened to these folks here. They were praying so hard, but maybe... Even though God has done this once before, maybe they weren't really believing that God was going to do this. And so they're taken off guard when He actually does. You ever been there? You ever prayed? Not just a general sort of prayer, but a specific prayer. Naming names, naming situations. And God answered it, and you were like, whoa. Taken off guard? I think that's kind of what happens here, is even in their disbelief, God still hears and God still answers. Now James tells us that when we pray, we're to pray with faith, believing and not disbelieving. But I think that perhaps their faith was not what it should have been at this point. They're praying and then God answers their prayer and they're, they're taken off guard. Kind of like the old story. We've all heard, heard the story told a dozen different ways of the farming community that was experiencing a drought and all the Christians in the community get together to pray for rain and nobody brings an umbrella, right? I mean, the story's been told a bunch of different ways. But it's kind of like that. The same thing here is that they're praying and then they're almost taken off, by, taken by, off guard when God actually moves. I think, you know, some of us would be shocked if God actually moved in this service this morning. I think that some of us pray prayers in our prayer life that have, after years, have become cliche. And we pray for God to do things and if God actually did those things, it would shock us silly. And the lesson here is, as James says, we are to pray with faith, believing and not disbelieving. We are not hindering God when we pray without faith, but neither are we glorifying God when we pray without faith either. So that's the lesson here. But let's, let's now look at this business about Peter. Because I think that this is the main thing that Luke has for us in the story, is this, this story of Peter and what happens to him in prison and how he gets out and all this, this sort of thing. So Peter's here in prison for the third time now. And 
He's under maximum security. Notice all the security. Four squads of soldiers. That's 16 men were assigned to Peter. And we read in verse 6 here that, that when he slept, two were chained to him at all times. Two more guarded the locked door. So Peter is under maximum security. They're probably remembering what happened the last time that they put Peter in prison. So here's Peter under heavy guard. The night before his execution, uh, Luke tells us in verse 5, that the next day was when Herod was going to do this. And what's Peter doing? He's sleeping. The night before his execution, he is asleep. And folks, he wasn't just asleep. This wasn't just sort of a light, fitful, sort of restless sleep, waking up every 20 minutes. Notice what the angel has to do to wake him up. The angel has to kick him. Wake up, Peter. Wake up. And then when he does wake up, he was roused out of such a deep sleep that he doesn't know what's going on. You ever been there? I mean, we, you're roused out of a really deep sleep, and for about five seconds you don't know who you are, what day it is, and where you are, you know? Happens to me sometimes. When you wake up, it takes a few seconds. What day is this? What am I supposed to be doing today? That's Peter here. The angel has to tell him, look what the angel has to say. Dress yourself. And not only that, the angel has to tell him how. Put on your sandals, Peter. Wrap your cloak around you, Peter. Follow me. Peter's so out of it because he was so deeply asleep that the angel has to kind of shake him, to rouse him. The night before his execution. I think that what Luke is showing us here is that this is a picture of the man who has the peace of God. It's hard to imagine a picture of someone who has more peace than Peter does right now. Peter has the peace of God so much so that he says to himself the night before his execution or his supposed execution, he says, I just got to get some sleep. I'm just tired. How many of us, how many of us lose sleep the night before we have to deal with an unpleasant situation at work? Or how many of us lose sleep the night before we've got to deal with an unpleasant situation in our family? And here Peter sleeps like a baby the night before his execution. Why was he so peaceful? Maybe it had something to do with what Jesus said to him in John 21. Remember what Jesus says, the risen Jesus comes and meets him on the beach, cooks him breakfast and everything. Remember what Jesus said to him? In your old age, you will give your life for me. So maybe Peter had so much trust and so much faith that in what Jesus said, in your old age, as an old man, you will be martyred for me. Maybe he had so much trust and so much faith in that 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 just produced in him this peace that that caused him to just sleep like a baby. Now, what was going on in Peter's life right now? Was Peter's life all calm? Peter's life was in turmoil, wasn't it? You know what we often think of when we think of the peace of God? We often think that the peace of God is the absence of conflict. That if somehow we could just rid our life of all the conflict and all the problems in our life, then we could have peace. And that's what Jesus is here to do. Jesus is here to help us solve our problems so that we can have peace. 
That is not the peace of God, folks. Your life is never going to be free of problems until you're with Jesus again. The peace of God is not the absence of conflict. The peace of God is in the middle of conflict. There's a story told of two Christian artists one time who were at, or, or I'm sorry, two artists. One was a Christian, one was an unbeliever. And they were asked to both paint a picture of peace, perfect peace. And the unbeliever paints a picture of, of a serene beach, pleasant sand on the beach, nice little waves lapping up on the sand, beautiful sunset over the water, families playing in the sand, building sand castle. And that was his idea of peace. And the Christian artist draws another beach, but this one is in a storm. And the sky is ugly and black and lightning is over the water. And waves are crashing, not against sand, but against rocks. And they're bashing against the rocks. And in the middle of the rocks, there's one rock that extends out higher than the other rocks. And the waves are bashing against that rock. And on the top of that rock is a cross. And folks, that's the biblical idea of peace. That is peace with God, not the absence of conflict. The peace of God is peace in the middle of conflict. Some of you right now are thinking of the peace that Peter had, and you're saying to yourself, my life is such a wreck, I could never have that kind of peace. The more of a mess your life is, the greater the peace that God can give you. Because the peace of God has nothing to do with absence of conflict, but it has everything to do with presence of the Spirit. And so Peter here is a picture of the man in perfect peace. Something we don't have. Can we admit that? We don't have peace today. We worry about everything. Despite what Jesus says about how it's pagans and heathens that worry, we worry about the election. We worry about our nation. We worry about our debt. We worry about Islamic terrorists. We worry about our family. We worry about everything. We don't have peace. How do we get this peace? Jesus tells us, Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And that is how you will have peace. We could talk a whole lot more about that, folks. But the peace of God only comes when we abide in Christ. But as we finish here, what I want to do is just back up a little bit and I want to look at the big picture. I want to look at the big picture that incorporates into it somebody that we forgot about, James. Because God does this for Peter, but He doesn't do it for James. Why not? Was Peter a better Christian than James? Was Peter more useful to the kingdom than James? Maybe the, maybe the church didn't pray for James like they prayed for Peter. None of that makes sense, right? Here's what we were tempted to say. We're tempted to say, well, God wasn't done with Peter yet. God still had something for Peter to do. That may be true. It's just that the story of Acts doesn't bear that out. Because in chapter 12, when Peter goes away, he's gone. We won't hear from Peter again. 
He'll make one brief appearance in chapter 15 when he's there at the Jerusalem council. But we're done with Peter. And so if God had greater things to do with Peter, maybe that was true. But according to the story of Acts, Peter decreases so that Paul can increase. So what's the answer, folks? Why did God do this for Peter and not for James? The answer is, we don't know. It is the sovereign will of God that we cannot know, we cannot discern, and we cannot understand. The sovereign will of God, when He allows one to suffer so deeply, even with his life, and another will be delivered. Some of you right now are struggling with this very idea how one can be healed and another won't. How one can be delivered and another is not. How one can find open doors in their life and another finds nothing but closed doors. Folks, it is the sovereign will of God. I have a friend, a good friend, who is a pastor. I'm going to share with you his story. I'm not going to give you any names or identifying details about the story. But he has a wife that has struggled for years with mental illness. And recently in his church, issues came up. They were unhappy with his leadership in in some areas, and they took it out on him by taking it out on his wife. They painted a target on his wife, and they railed on her. They said some very ungodly things. And that, combined with some other complications in their life right now, has caused this godly woman to have a total breakdown. Right now, as we speak, she is in the mental health facility of their local hospital. Largely because of what their church did to her. And so my friend writes to me, and and we email every day talking about this, and he pours out his heart to me. He says, I don't understand this. Why? All we want to do is serve God. Why? And he says, is God disciplining me? Is there something in my life that God is disciplining me for? Maybe God is trying to tell me something. Maybe He's trying to tell me that I'm not supposed to be at this church. Maybe He's trying to tell me I'm not supposed to be in ministry at all. As best I can, I assure Him, God is not disciplining you. God doesn't discipline you by afflicting your wife this way. God is not trying to communicate to you. This is simply the sovereign will of God to allow some to suffer deeply and others to be delivered from suffering. And folks, let me suggest to you that that's where Peter's trust really is. That's where Peter's peace really is. Let me suggest that Peter's peace did not come from what Jesus told him in John 21. As an old man, you'll give your life for me. Folks, what's the definition of old? At what age do you become old? Peter is late 40s, early 50s here. If you're 35, then 50's old. And so if the peace of Peter 
was hanging on the words of Jesus when Jesus promised him that he would live to old age, don't you think Peter's mind would have started thinking, what did Jesus mean by that? What, what is old? I'm a lot older than Jesus was. Folks, the peace of Peter was not what Jesus said to him on the beach. The peace of Peter was the rock. The sovereign will of God was the peace of Peter. It's like Abraham. You remember Abraham? He has that conversation, that really interesting conversation with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. God's on His way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham is pleading with Him to spare them because his nephew Lot lives there. And at the end of that conversation, Genesis 18, verse 25, Abraham says, Surely the judge of all the earth will do what is just. And that's the peace of Peter. Peace that the sovereign will of God will do what is just. And whatever that is, is okay with me. Peter is in the same place that Paul was in when he was in that Roman jail. And he writes to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Doesn't matter. Either way, I'm a winner. If the sovereign will of God would have my life to end now, then that is what is best for me. If the sovereign will of God is not for me to, to die now, then that is what is best for me. And I trust so implicitly in the sovereign will of God that I can have peace in whatever circumstance I face because I know the judge of the earth and the judge of the earth will do what is just. peace of God, I think, can be compared to merging onto the interstate. You know what it's like to merge onto the interstate. There are basically two fundamentally different kind of mergers, right? What are they? There's the speeder-uppers and the slower-downers, right? And everybody, every driver falls into one category. You either, you either instinctively speed up to merge or you instinctively slow down to merge. Which are the better mergers? The speeder-uppers are the better mergers, right? I'm a speeder-upper. And uh, you know what? I have total peace merging. I have merging peace because it doesn't bother me at all to merge onto the highway because I automatically, instinctively accelerate. But you know what? The slower-downers, they don't have merging peace, do they? You ever ridden with a slower-downer? When they're coming up onto a busy highway and they're slowing down, slowing down, sometimes you see them stopped. You're like, you're never going to get out of there. Some people are so anxious about it that they will avoid the interstate at all costs. Unless there's no way to get from here to there without getting on, on the interstate, they're not going to go there. Me, on the other hand, if an interstate goes within 20 miles of where I'm going, that's where what I'm taking is the interstate. So we have these two fundamentally different kinds of mergers, a speeder-upper and a slower-downer. The will of God can be seen as the interstate and traffic that's moving down the interstate at 80 miles an hour. And the peace of God is the accelerator, is the speeder-upper that says, I don't know where this is going, but wherever it's going is the best place for me to go. And so let me speed up and get on there. Folks, that's the peace of Peter. 
He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. He doesn't know if Jesus meant that old age is 50 or 75. It doesn't matter. Because whatever the sovereign will of God, He knows that God loves Him so much that He killed His Son for Him. And if God would kill His Son to redeem Peter, then would God withhold anything else good from Peter? That's, what, that's the argument that Paul makes to the Romans. He who gave up His own Son, would He not do anything that is in your best interest? And so Peter sleeps like a baby because he has the peace of God. There are folks here this morning that you need the peace of God in your heart. And the peace of God will come to you when you stop thinking of peace in terms of freeing myself from conflict. When you stop thinking in terms of let me get to this certain point in my life and then everything will be okay. Let me just get that job and then I'll have peace. Let me just get into that school and then I'll have peace. Let me just get past this crisis and then I'll have peace. Peace comes in the crisis.